Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke. To David. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you today. Thanks for being here. There's a big difference between um, promises that we make, pledges we make, and promises and pledges that God makes. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, raise your hand internally, right? How many of you have, have uh, sworn to never do a certain thing again? Or to begin to do something you should be doing again. Only to go back on your word. Years or months or weeks or let's be honest, hours later. God, on the other hand, always keeps perfectly the promises that he makes. In my opinion, that's one of the most beautiful things about God. He is faithful to his promises. He never, ever breaks them. He never violates his word. 
That's really great news for you this morning. No matter what's happened to you this week, no matter where you are emotionally or spiritually or psychologically, because God has made outstanding promises to every single one of us. That if we repent of our sin and trust into Jesus Christ, we will live forever. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That God will never ever leave you nor will he ever forsake you. God makes really remarkable promises to all of us. This chapter is a reminder of that because this is one of the great promise chapters in the entire Bible. 2 Samuel 7 is a a critical chapter in David's life, which is what we're studying together this spring. Uh, And it's also a critical chapter in the entire story of the scripture. In fact, this speech that God makes to David, or actually to Nathan, is the longest speech that God has made since Exodus 20, when he gave the law to Moses. This chapter is what theologians have often referred to as the Davidic covenant, the covenant God makes with his servant David. The word covenant is not used, but it certainly is that. God establishes here a relationship on his own terms with David and David's descendants. Here's what you need to get in order to understand really the rest of the Bible and especially the ministry of Jesus. You have to understand something about David and David's covenant. Think about the stories you probably read around Christmas time. In Matthew, the first gospel, chapter one, verse one, Jesus is introduced to us as the son of anybody know David. In Luke's gospel, when the angel appears to Mary to announce to Mary that she's going to bear a child, even though she's a virgin, Gabriel says to Mary that God will give to your son the throne of his father, David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end, Gabriel says. Later in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul introduces himself in his greatest letter, his letter to the Romans, and he introduces his gospel, he says that the gospel that Paul preaches is, quote, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The rest of the Bible is the story of the fulfillment of the promises God makes to David here in this chapter. And I hope this portion of the Bible ministers, ministers to your hearts this morning. It really ministered to me this week. It really did. Um, and it ministered to me because this text is really good news for promise breakers. Remember that old ministry from the 90s, Promise Keepers? A lot of great things, but I was like, I shouldn't go to that. I'm a promise breaker. This is great news for promise breakers. It's great news for failures. It's great news for spiritual also-rans. It's great news if you feel like you don't measure up today because God sets his loving and saving affection on us, not because of anything we have done or will do, but simply out of the deep recesses of his gracious and merciful heart. There's a great hymn that uh, stuck in my mind this week as I, I read this by a man named William Gadsby, and it starts like this. The love of Christ is rich and free fixed on his own eternally. Nor earth, nor hell can it remove. Long as he lives his own, he'll love. And you think, man, Jesus is going to live for a long time. That's the exact point. As long as Jesus lives, his own, he'll love. You need to believe that this morning, my friends. 
Um, For those of you who are reeling today from your own struggles and from your own sins, for those of you who today are feeling hurt by the broken promises of someone else, for those of you who are tired of the endless self-improvement projects our world obsesses with, here God offers you his lavish grace through Jesus Christ, and he asks you to receive it. Let's look at the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, in two parts. First, David's plan. Second, God's promises. Okay, first, David's plan. To set the stage, um, this chapter probably comes sometime after the events we looked at last week in chapter 6. David is the king of a united Israel. And we read in verse 1, the Lord has given David peace from all his surrounding enemies. Israel's been established as a nation in their own land, just like God promised, and David is reigning in Jerusalem. And as we've seen, David is. He's a man after God's own heart. Sinful, yes. Broken, yes. But wants to honor and serve the Lord as king. He loves the Lord. He wants to rule in a way that pleases the Lord. And so one night, David is hanging out with his friend Nathan, who's introduced to us in this chapter, and who's going to play a significant role in the coming years in David's life. I imagine them, you know, hanging out on the rooftop of David's palace, sipping a glass of milk, and uh, spending time together, and looking out over the city, enjoying the fruit of their labors. And David, in verse 2, basically says, Nathan, how is it possible that I live in this amazing palace of cedar and God dwells in a tent. David's home was fragrant. It was cedar paneled. It was beautiful. It was expensive, but God still lives in the, the raggedy, moldy, old tabernacle tent. This was the tent God had dwelled in since the days of the Exodus, hundreds of years before it was a traveling temple. And David, because he loves God, has it in his mind to build God a house that is fitting for the kind of God he is. That's what he says. I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwells in a tent. I'm going to do something about it. And Nathan, as every good pastor in the history of the world, when a rich person says, I've got a good idea that I want to spend a lot of money on, says, that's a great plan. Go for it. Go for it. But uh, that night... Uh, God appears to Nathan and basically says, hey, I have different ideas and a different plan. He says, David will not build me a house. That's not my plan. And, And we get into the substance of the chapter when God tells Nathan why. He gives him two basic reasons why David is not going to build a house for him. The first reason is because God is incarnational. God is incarnational. Look at verse 6. God says to Nathan the prophet, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up people of Egypt, Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And then he says, verse 7, everywhere my people have gone, I have gone with them. God's saying he's never asked for a temple because he's the kind of God who wants to dwell with his people. And his people have been pilgrims. They've been wanderers. They've been homeless. And so God has been a pilgrim, a wanderer, a homeless God. 
God wants to identify with his people. God doesn't want to live like a king while his people are out in the cold of the night and the heat of the day. I, I, read, uh, I read an interesting story this week about a man named Sam Rayburn. Some of you might know who he was. He was the Speaker of the House for probably longer than any other Speaker of the House in the 20th century. He was especially influential on uh, FDR in the mid-20th century. And the story I read about him was uh, one of the reporters who was on the beat in the House of Representatives in Washington, his teenage daughter passed away. And Rayburn heard about this. And one morning, very early, came and knocked on the door of this reporter. And uh, the reporter opened the door, obviously very surprised to see Sam Rayburn standing there before him. And Rayburn said to this kind of no-name reporter, I've seen, I'm, I'm just coming by to see if there's anything I can do to help you. And, and the reporter was kind of stuttered and, and managed to say, yeah, I don't think there's anything you can do for me right now, Mr. Speaker. But Sam Rayburn would not be deterred. He said, have you had your coffee this morning? And, and this reporter said, actually, no, I haven't had time to make it. So Rayburn kind of moved past him into this man's small one-bedroom apartment and began to make coffee for him. And, and as Speaker Rayburn was making the coffee, the reporter remembered every week on this morning, uh, the speaker is supposed to be at a, a stated weekly appointment. And so he said, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. And Rayburn said, I was. But I called the president. I told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't make it. That is incarnational. That is powerful people condescending to care for powerless people. On an infinitely greater level, it's what God is like. Think about how staggering that is. Think about how countercultural that is. Think about how amazing it is that God is so committed to being our God that he identifies with us in the full neediness of our humanity. So much so that Jesus, the final revelation of God, the gospels say, had no place to lay his head. So God says, I'm not going to build, have David build a house because I'm incarnational. Secondly, God says, David's not going to build my house because I'm gracious. Look in verse, uh, where are we? Verse eight. He tells Nathan, here's what I want you to say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord. Anytime you see thus says the Lord, you know what's about to come is important. Thus says the Lord, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. He went from pasture boy to prince. God's saying, David, you aren't going to do anything for me, David. You're not going to do anything for me. I am going to do things for you. That's the way this relationship works. God is the one who has elected David out of all his brothers, out of all the men of Israel to be the king. God is the one who's delivered David from all of his enemies. God is the one who has been with him wherever he had gone and had caused him to have favor with the people and to flourish in all his works. Here's what I think's happening. Sneaking ever so subtly into David's mind here. Sneaking ever so subtly into David's mind is the idea that he can do God a favor. 
He can do God a favor. Let me build you this house, Lord. I'm kind of embarrassed that I have a palace and you have a moldy, raggedy old tent. But God reminds David and God reminds us. As the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? This concept... If you want to understand Christianity, you've got to understand it because it is utterly unique in the history of religion. Christianity is completely unique. In David's time, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was very normal that when a god blessed a ruler or a king or a warrior, that king would then build a temple for his god in order to please the god and, crucially, in order to garner further blessing from the god. There are stories, you can Google them. You can Google stories from every ancient culture about this sort of thing. The Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Egyptians, all of them said, repay me what I've done for you by building me a temple and then I'll continue to help you. Now, we don't build temples to gods anymore. Or do we? Interesting, different sermon for a different day. Um, But all of us, by nature, still live on the principle that is illustrated there. Our world functions in this exact same way. Every single one of us by nature believe that divine blessing is achieved conditionally. But Christianity and the gospel say divine blessing is received unconditionally. Every other religion says in one way or another, do this and you will live. Do this and you can come to me. Do this and I will bless you. The gospel, on the other hand, illustrated here in God's response to David, is that we have done nothing that brings blessing, only cursing. But God blesses anyway because God is purely gracious from beginning to end. Even Christians struggle to believe this. We think... God has been so kind to me. Now I will live my life to repay him so he will continue to be kind to me. I'll give, I'll serve, I'll go, I'll pray, and I'll secure God's blessing. We think we can take a line of credit out with God. Is that true for you? Why are you here? Why are you here today? Why do you serve and worship God to stay in his good graces, to build up some favor so that when things go bad, you can draw on the account or because you rejoice in his unmerited, unearned grace. God's grace is never and can never be a repayment for your service to him. God's grace is always and only free and undeserved. Secondly, we see God's promise. The the tone of the text is one of just kind of unhinged, unbridled grace. And it continues uh, in verse 9, the the second half. Notice that in the second half, God transitions to saying what he's going to do for David. God's saying, David, you're not going to do me a favor. You're not going to build a house for me. In fact, I'm going to build a house for you. Look at at verse 11. The Lord declares to you, 
that the Lord will build you a house. Of course, when David used the word house, he meant like a literal house, a temple. When God uses the word house, he means a household. He means a dynasty. What God does is he unconditionally promises to make David's sons a kingship that will last forever. I hope it kind of was stunning for you to hear verses 9 through 17 read. Scan through it again and and see all that God promises to do for David and for David's descendants. We, We can break it down into three sections. Three sections of promise. First, God makes a personal promise. Look at what he says to David through Nathan, verse 9. I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This echoes an earlier promise David, God had made to an earlier man. This man's name was Abraham. He appeared to Abraham, God did, out of nowhere. And in Genesis 12 says, I will bless you, Abraham, and I will make your name great. And obviously that promise has been fulfilled because me, a Gentile, 4,000 years later, am standing here talking about you, to you about Abraham. And, and you will be a blessing, God said to Abraham. God committed himself covenantally to these real, flawed men. They weren't looking for it. They didn't ask for it. God just showed up and started making promises. Abraham had no idea God was coming for him. God just shows up out of nowhere and says, go to the land that I'll show you. It's yours, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, all right. Why? Why does God do that? Abraham didn't do anything for that. In fact, Abraham did all kinds of things that should have revoked the entire arrangement. He lied. He told people his wife was his sister twice. He did that twice. And gave his wife to the king of the town he was in to save his own skin. He had a terrible relationship with his son Ishmael and with Ishmael's mom, Hagar, That's one of those stories where you've just got to dismiss all the kids from the room before you start preaching on it. And it's the same with David. David has so many massive screw-ups. We're about to start reading about them. David ruins people's lives. He ruins people's lives through no fault of their own. But God comes to these men and he loves them unconditionally and he keeps his promises to bless them. Listen, God has made personal promises to you as well. That's what God's like. Do you know that? God has loved you from before the foundation of the world. God predestined you into adoption into his family, Abraham's family, David's family. God has set his saving mercy on you. I hope you're thinking, why? Why me? Why would God do this for me? That sounds ridiculous, pastor. It's too good to be true. Well, you're starting to get the gospel. If that's your response. If you think, look at what I've done. Look at who I've been. Look at all the hurt I've caused and all the trouble I'm in and all the problems I've created. Why would God do it? Because God's gracious. Because God wants you personally, all of you, today. Can you believe that? 
can you trust in that promise for you? God makes personal promises. Second, God makes a generational promise. A generational promise. He says that Israel, verse 10, verse 11, Israel's going to be safe in their land. And then when David dies, he says, verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, your son's kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So he's going to build the house, not you. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's referring immediately to Solomon, David's future son, who's going to be the next king of Israel. And these promises are fulfilled. Do you want to know if the Bible's true? Everything God says here is exactly what happens. Everything God says here is exactly what happens. Solomon does indeed build God's temple, and David has descendants on the throne for the next 400 years consecutively. Look at what God says in verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Some of these kings, David's great, 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 great grandchildren, are wicked. They do horrible things. They're evil. They couldn't care less about God. But God is generationally faithful to the promise he makes to David. David dies, but that doesn't stop God's promise. David sins, and David's children sin, but that doesn't break God's pledge. Sin can't break his pledge, and death can't break his pledge. I hope... This aspect of God's promise can minister to some of our deepest hurts, to some of our deepest wounding, which, which tend to be generational. As a pastor who sometimes deals with human souls, I know that that's true for a lot of us. Some of us come from broken family trees, don't we? We come from broken homes. We've experienced the deep impact of generational sin. The sins of the father and the mother passed down. And others of us, we worry how our own failures, how our own sins, how our own screw-ups are going to affect the next generations. Listen, the promise of God's grace is that your genetics do not define you. Your genetics... Don't define you. There are no sins, there are no hurts that our fathers or our mothers have committed that can overcome the pledge of God's grace to those who come to him in Christ. There are no sins or hurts that you can bestow upon your children that will overcome the pledge of grace that God makes in Christ. The promises of the gospel signified in our baptisms are true to the thousandth generation. Third, God makes an eternal promise. Personal, generational, eternal. Look, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Sin can't break God's promised pledge to love you. Death can't break God's promised pledge to love you. And time cannot break God's promised pledge to love you. His covenant is irrevocable. It's eternally fixed. Of the increase of David's kingdom, there will be no end, Gabriel says to Mary. 
God's promise to David and David's dynasty will transcend sin and death and even time. How can God be like that? I mean, really? We look at what the world is like, and we look at what we're like, and we look at the generations before us and the generations that are coming after us, and we think, this is full of darkness. This is full of brokenness. This is full of hurt. It's full of sin. Is God really just going to sweep this stuff away and forget about it? No. He does not do that. Well, then how can he make promises that are this lavish? He does it through the final king in David's line. David's true son, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. And in Jesus, we receive all the blessings of this promise. God can keep his promise to David. God can keep his promise to us. Even though we sin, and even though we're broken, and even though we're flawed failures. Not because God ignores our sin, but because Jesus has taken our sin on himself to forgive us. God can keep his promise even through death because Jesus has already overcome death and been given the name that is above all names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And and God can keep his promise throughout time forever because we have in Jesus an eternal high priest who, as Hebrews tells us, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. All of these promises are for you. All of these promises are for us. Nothing can thwart God's desire to show you grace. Not your personal sin. Not your generational sin in the past or in the future. Not even the steady march of time which ends in death. For every single one of us. But when it ends in our death, that is only the beginning. In fact, it's the beginning of new and eternal life. Because Jesus has died. And has overcome death through his resurrection. And one day will return and make every single particle of this universe completely new again. If you believe into that message and connect to Jesus Christ... Every single thing you read in this chapter, no matter how spectacularly crazy it sounds, is true for you now. God makes promises to you, irrespective of your deservedness, and always keeps them. Let's pray.